it starts off, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. So who are the Sadducees? So they were kind of uh, an elitist Jewish sect that was concerned with political, social, and economic power. They colluded with the the Roman nation that was oppressing the, the people, and that helped them put, into, put them into a place to benefit from the status and influence and, and political power of Rome. And they held the, the Torah in very high regard. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they, they believed that these five books were the utmost important, and we call it the Torah. And so they believed the rest of the Old Testament was much less valid and that only the Torah was important. And so everything they believed came from those first five books of the Bible. And they didn't believe in an afterlife because they didn't see that the afterlife was taught in the Torah, in those first five books. So when the Sadducees questioned Jesus about the resurrection, this isn't a genuine question. This isn't someone like actually wondering, hey, what happens here? This is someone who's actually trying to entrap Jesus to make the resurrection and those who believe in a resurrection sound ridiculous. And Jesus uh, talked a lot about the afterlife. So this this is kind of where the Sadducees come up with asking Jesus this question. David Garland says, the issue of resurrection is crucial in the context of Luke. Jesus has prophesied that he will suffer and die at the hands of the authorities in Jerusalem, and his fate is sealed as the opposition closes in on him. He has also prophesied that he will be vindicated when God raises him from the dead on the third day. If there's no resurrection, this prophecy is delusional, wishful thinking. So remember, they're not actually looking for an answer to this question. They're trying to make Jesus and those who believe in the resurrection seem silly. And they know that Jesus has been talking a lot about the resurrection. He's been talking a lot about the age to come. So with this in mind, they kind of, in a mocking tone, think, okay, we're going to ask Jesus a question. We're going to stump him. We're going to confuse him. So, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a woman's brother dies, sorry, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, so let's kind of go back. Where does it say that? It actually, this law is from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Torah. So it's part of the scripture that the Sadducees held in high regard and believed in. And in Deuteronomy 5, it says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay, there are kind of two reasons for this weird law. One is, is that to make sure that a childless widow was cared for. Because at this time, in this place, to be a childless widow would have left you in a very vulnerable condition. So this was to make sure that she was cared for. And secondly, it was to carry on the line of the deceased. See, for those who, like the Sadducees, they didn't believe in an afterlife, your continued family tree, having descendants that outlived you, was kind of how they understood salvation. That's how you lived on. You lived on through your offspring. And you were remembered through your descendants. And so if your line was cut off, your name was basically forgotten. It was blotted out from Israel. And it was kind of like missing out on their understanding of salvation, of an afterlife. Now, 
I don't think there are any examples of this actually happening in the Old Testament. It seems that by the time Jesus and the New Testament come around, that this is a, a custom that seems to have been largely ignored. But either, the, but either way, the Sadducees kind of continue with this hypothetical brain teaser for Jesus. It's kind of like they're like, hey, Jesus, riddle me this. Riddle me this, Jesus. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and the third married her. In the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? So I picture the Sadducees kind of asking this question with their chests, chests puffed out, like they're feeling quite proud, like they're about to silence this menace that uh, has been talking about the afterlife and stirring people up, causing so much trouble. So they're kind of like, Jesus, come on, whose wife is she going to be? She had seven husbands, Jesus. How does that even work in the resurrection? Isn't the idea of the resurrection silly? And again, they're trying to trap him, make him look like a buffoon. Diane Chen says, the sole purpose of this question is to discredit Jesus. If he claims she is the wife of all seven brothers, they could charge him for condoning polyandry. But... If he says that she is the wife of only one brother, he would be guilty of revoking Moses' law of leveret marriage. So it's a good setup. I can see why they think they have Jesus cornered. This is a pretty good argument. Good job, Sadducees. Well done. Well, not really. Because Jesus replies in verse 34, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Now, I promised to talk a little bit about marriage in the age to come. But first, let's remember the point that Jesus is making here. The resurrection is real, and it's awesome. Jesus doesn't directly answer their question, but he goes on to teach a lesson about the age to come, and marriage is only the case study. It's only the example that Jesus is using to talk about resurrection. And what he's saying is he's saying that the Sadducees' idea, their idea, okay, try and track with me here, their idea about what Jesus is saying about the resurrection, Jesus is saying is all wrong. Jesus is saying, you don't understand what I mean by the age to come. He's saying you have to think bigger because life is going to be fundamentally different than the life we know today. In the age to come, or in heaven if you will, it is not simply a continuation of this life that goes on forever. That's how the Sadducees thought Jesus was talking. But in the age to come is actually radically different than what we know and experience and even desire in this life. Jesus is saying that even something as foundational as marriage will give way to something new, something better. See, they don't believe that God can make an afterlife that's better than this one. They don't trust God to be able to improve upon his creation. So the question is, are we, or for myself, am I able to trust God that he has something even more wonderful than marriage in store for me in the age to come? When this present age concludes, do I anticipate and trust him to make all things new, to make all things better? Or am I stuck on things from this place? It's kind of like standing at the entrance to the coolest zoo you've ever seen and only wishing for dogs and horses. 
right? It's going to be beyond anything our minds can comprehend or conceive. We naturally compare heaven to what we know, to what we've experienced, and because of that, we long for marriage to be a part of heaven. But Jesus is saying, think bigger. Marriage has only ever been a signpost pointing to the greatness of the relationship that we're going to experience with God and others in heaven. So this like my brain, the box that is my brain's understanding is only, I don't know, this big or however big it is. And Jesus is teaching that what he has planned is so much bigger than what my brain can comprehend or imagine. Leon Morris says, life in heaven will be significantly different from anything on earth. Human relationships are largely a matter of place and time. They're bound to be different when neither of these applies. I know in my life, and, and I think in the church in particular, we have made family and marriage into such a goal and focus of life that we can't imagine a world without it. Single people are like, yes, finally, finally, stop talking about marriage all the time. I love how the First Nation Bible uh, puts it. It says, marriage belongs to this present world. Marriage belongs to the present world and to those who live in it. So I believe that God gave us marriage as a temporary place to create a family where we can know and know someone in deeper, more intimate way than with anyone else. At its best, and that's actually an important part, at its best, because not all marriages are at their best, at its best, marriage points us to the beauty and the closeness and the intimacy and the relationship that we'll experience in the age to come. The purposes for which marriage was created will no longer be needed in heaven. This is a hard teaching for a lot of us. Some people are like, oh, it's no big deal at all. But for some of us, this is a very hard teaching. and something that I think a lot of Christians kind of push up against. And this is the part that my friend said that they didn't like this teaching of Jesus. And they would try really hard not to think about it. But I want you to know that in studying this passage, I'm actually falling in love with what Jesus has to say here. He's calling us to think bigger. He's asking us not to limit him, but to trust him, to trust him with our future and our families and our eternity, with our marriages. He's saying the resurrection is real and it's coming and it's incomprehensible. How good is that news that the age to come is better than the best things of this life? But let's not forget that Jesus actually isn't teaching about marriage here. He's teaching about resurrection. And he's trying to convince the Sadducees that resurrection is real. And they don't like the idea of resurrection because, first of all, it means they're wrong. No one likes being wrong. And second, it would threaten their kind of materialistic things that they were chasing after, like money, political power, and influence. And so then, Jesus continues in verse 37. He says, But in the account of the burning bush... Even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Okay, so when I first read this, I was like, weird right turn, okay? We're talking about marriage, we're talking about resurrection. Now we're talking about the burning bush and Moses. So let's go to the story of uh, Moses and the burning bush from Exodus chapter 3. Again, the, th um, the second book in that five part of the Old Testament called the Torah that the Sadducees actually did believe in and hold in high regard. So a part of the, the scriptures that they believed in says in Exodus chapter 3, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. 
And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses! And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And from there, it goes on to way more cool stories, like plagues in Egypt, and like crossing the sea, and manna from heaven, and Ten Commandments, and so many great things in the book of Exodus. But how does this fit into Jesus' teaching on resurrection? Why does he mention this story when trying to convince the Sadducees about an age to come? Well, the reason is, is that Jesus is trying to show the Sadducees in the Torah, in that first five books, in the scriptures that matter the most to them, in the part where God is actually named for the first time, where he is called the great I am. From there, he wants to prove that the resurrection is not a new idea and that the afterlife is not something that was invented by other religions, but something that is laid out even in the Old Testament books of the Torah. Diane Chen says, by the time of Moses, the patriarchs were long gone. Yet God used the present tense, I am, when referring to himself as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God. Jesus argues that these men will dead by human reckoning. They are alive to God, the God of the living and not the dead. Therefore, God must have kept Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive by way of the resurrection, since God can raise the dead. There's no point in identifying yourself as the God of dead people. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is arguing that even Moses believed in a resurrection, that he uh, is a God of the living and wouldn't be referring to himself as a God of dead people. Talbert says, when God has a relationship with someone, that relationship is not terminated by death. God will not allow an enemy of his, namely death, to destroy that which means so much to him. So even death cannot break our relationship with God. That's what Jesus is teaching, that even death cannot separate us from the love of God. And the Sadducees actually seem to like be like, okay, good one, Jesus. And they seem to take it and are like, okay, I guess that makes sense. I guess Moses did believe in an afterlife, in a resurrection. And then our verse concludes. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Like nobody is trying to trick Jesus anymore. That's done in Luke. People are like, this doesn't work. Um, and so he hasn't directly answered their question about the, the uh, widow and the seven husbands, but he has silenced those who disagree with the idea of the afterlife or of the resurrection or the age to come. So these once proud Sadducees kind of shrink away defeated because Jesus has made his point. So what is the big point? What is the big point for us today? I believe it's that God is calling us to think bigger, to just think bigger. I don't have to convince most Jesus followers that the age to come, that a resurrection is real, that that is actually going to happen. I think most Christians today can accept that. 
But that was the biggest point Jesus was making in this story, was to convince the Sadducees that the resurrection was real, because to them it was silly and impossible. But Jesus basically says, think bigger, don't limit God, because he doesn't fit in that box that is your brain. He's saying heaven is real, and you and I, a lot of us can accept that. But I think, I think there is a part of it that we have a hard time accepting. I think believing that heaven is beyond and better than I can imagine can actually be hard for me. Trusting God that it will be good and that we won't get bored. I was a youth pastor. Do you know how many kids have said to me over the years, I'm going to get bored in heaven. I get tired of church after an hour. Like, an hour is pretty long to begin with, right? Like, what if we're doing this forever? Trusting God that we won't get bored in eternity. Trusting Jesus with how our family works, with how our friendships work with how relationships, with how spouses work in heaven. Do we trust God with that? That's harder. Will I be okay with what that looks like? Am I going to be okay with whatever new version of Kevin and Christina, whatever that looks like in heaven? I think a major point of today's text is to remind me that my worldview is often too small because it's limited by my own brain and that I need to be willing to be stretched when contemplating spiritual things and the age to come. Jesus is telling the Sadducees that heaven is going to be fundamentally different than what they expect, that it's not just an extended version of this life. David Garland says, Jesus teaches the dead will be raised to a new existence that cannot be compared to earthly experiences. So it's actually going to be completely dissimilar. The resurrection is going to be different than this life. Like angels... We are going to live without fear of death. And life without death, life without sin, life without heartache is actually kind of unimaginable for us today. Resurrection will not be an extension of this life or just an extension of this life. I often think of it that way where my cares, my priorities, my likes and my dislikes are the same in heaven as they are now just for way, way longer. Jesus is calling me to magnify my worldview, to think bigger. There are times when I think I still behave like the Sadducees, when I have an incomplete vantage point that kind of limits how I see or understand God and what he is able to do. And since it's too big for us to me, for me to take in, I put limits on what God can do. I mean, surely he can't replace my life with something better. He might not know what I like. He might not know the things that I care about. He might not have what's best for me in mind. I'd actually rather have more choices into what heaven... Jesus, can there be a suggestion box for heaven? Like, that would be awesome if I could just help you out a little bit. Because I'm not convinced that you know what's going to be best for me in heaven. Because I would like to keep some of my things. I have stuff. I have material things that I actually really like. And I want to have in heaven. I have friendships that I want to continue in heaven. I have family that I want to know in heaven. I have a spouse that I want to know in heaven. This is how I tend to think. And Jesus has been reminding me this last week that my faith is sometimes too small and that I put limits on what he is able to do. 1 Corinthians 2 says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived. What no human, I've conceived of some pretty big things. But what no human mind has conceived are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. 
So I want to remind us today that God knows you. He knows your desires. He knows your longings. He knows your cares. He created you and he designed you. He has a future in store for you and for me that is beyond anything we could ask for. On this side of heaven, we're often asking for dogs and horses. And he's like, if you only knew what was just around that gate. If you only knew what was just around the corner. How much bigger and beautiful and more majestic and wonderful and fulfilling. We actually don't have words to describe it. Our senses are incapable of sensing it. So I think a takeaway for us today is to challenge our own notions of what heaven will be like and to trust and believe that whatever God has in store for us is going to be phenomenal and magnificent. I want to challenge you to try and imagine something. Imagine a world where there is nothing influenced by sin, hate, selfishness, or greed. Where every deed is done in love, with integrity, and justice. Where everyone is free to be open and vulnerable and trusting because there is nothing to fear. Where our new bodies are always healthy and strong and where sickness never comes. Where our minds are sharp and they will never fail. A time is coming when there will always be more than enough for everyone and no one will be left in need or wanting. A place with no war or violence or oppression. Where God's voice and love and guidance will be audible and where your abilities will transcend anything you've dreamed of. Imagine a world where our deepest wounds and hurts are healed by the love and the power of God in that age to come. That is what Jesus is talking about. Everything in this life pales in comparison to what Jesus has in store for you and for me in the age to come. Even marriage, and that seems impossible. And I have a hard time. That's, that's the dog and the horse for me. Don't tell Christina I said that. But like, that, that's kind of how like, I just want to hold on to that. But I love that God thinks bigger than I do. I love that God imagines bigger than I do. He is worthy of my trust, even if I don't understand it. That's what he's asking the Sadducees to believe, and that's what he's asking you and I to believe. But there's still this kind of sticky point, this passage that we don't like to talk about. The part why I asked Marie to do a family Sunday and the kids are watching a movie downstairs. The part where there's no marriage in heaven. Again, that's not the main point of Jesus' teaching here. So we can't like go too deep into it. But there, there are some things here that we can pull out and it does raise a lot of questions. So I'm just going to answer them all right now. You ready? I'll just answer all the questions you have about heaven and marriage. And re- No, I, I, I'll do my best. <laughs> Many of us really have a hard time with marriage not continuing in heaven, myself included. I do a lot of weddings. I've actually married a lot of people in this room. Till death do us part. Even marriage is a commitment and a covenant we make until death parts us. Even in our vows, we recognize that a time comes when marriage ends, a time when the bonds of marriage conclude. Now, this can raise all sorts of feelings, all sorts of questions in us. See, maybe your marriage was not what you expected or hoped for, and you've been really disappointed by marriage. Or maybe your marriage or your parents' marriage hasn't left you with warm, fuzzy feelings, but instead with trauma and with heartache. 
Maybe marriage doesn't sound like fun to you and you never want to be married. Or maybe you wish to be married, but it's never worked out for you. Or maybe you and your spouse have separated and you feel that brokenness and you're afraid of what that's going to look like in heaven. Or maybe your spouse went to be with Jesus before you and now you feel alone and you're worried about how that's going to look in heaven, maybe because you've remarried or you're with someone else now. Or maybe friendships have left you feeling wanting and empty. Or maybe the idea of no marriage in heaven is actually really appealing to you. We need to know that in the age to come, family relationships in the life to come will be transcended. The love and closeness and intimacy and security and hope and joy that we hopefully find in human relationships, including with our spouses, are going to give way to something bigger and better. Relationships are going to level up. They won't look the same. It's not going to be a continuation of the relationship we have now. Some of you know Pokemon. Of course Pokemon's in this sermon. Got to catch them all. Pokemon, they level up. And when they level up, they unlock new powers and new abilities. And they're not the same anymore. They, they only vaguely resemble what they did before. Their appearance changes. And in the life to come, we are only going to vaguely resemble who and what we are now. And we're going to have new desires and senses and new understanding that is going to be unlocked in us, that is going to morph our worldview to fully see and understand what God has in store for us. Now, anything I say specific about relationships and marriage in heaven is kind of in the constraints of my mortal mind, which I've said can't fit heaven into it. Um, Our minds are too small for heaven. But I actually find a lot of comfort and beauty in knowing that I can't fully comprehend heaven that it is bigger than my mind can grasp and that God couldn't explain it to me even if he tried because my brain is finite, right? It is mortal. It's bigger. So there's trust and faith involved. And when it comes to marriage, there actually is going to be marriage in heaven. There's going to be one marriage in heaven between Christ and his bride and we are a part of that bride. I'm going to be a bride. And I love that image. I feel like so much of language that we use today forces uh, women to accept male analogies and metaphors and imagery that I actually love it when it works the other way around. So um, if you have questions about heaven, this, a sermon like this can actually raise a lot of questions. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to uh, find a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Uh, he's someone that, that uh, we use often in our sermons and, and uh, I, I would encourage you, his book is simply called Heaven. Uh, and there's a lot in it. I'm not sure I buy into 100%, but he studied it way more than I have, and uh, there's some great things. I'm going to try and summarize some of his points in the next couple of minutes here. He says, Heaven won't be without families, but will be one big happy family in which all family members are friends, and all friends are family members. He brings us to Ephesians 5, which says, uh, Paul speaking, saying, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. Marriage is supposed to be an image and a foreshadowing of the marriage between Christ and his church. You and I together... And churches and Christians throughout the world and throughout history, together we make up the big C church. And I don't fully get how it works. There's some mystery to it. But marriage is that signpost pointing to marriage, 
to come between Christ and his bride. So when we reach the age to come or heaven, uh, earthly marriage will, the purpose of it will have been served and will give way to the most exciting, fulfilling relationship that we could ever know by being united with Christ in heaven. So the marriage between us and Christ will be so completely satisfying that even the most wonderful earthly marriage will pale in comparison. One section in Randy Alcorn's book talks about, well, we know our spouses in heaven. And I love what he says here. He says, will we become more distant in the new world? Of course not. We'll become closer, I'm convinced. I believe that in heaven you will know your spouse. You will know your children. You will know your parents. You will know your friends and your family. And you will know them so much better than you do now. You will be so much closer than you are now. And it's going to be so much more wonderful than our brains can comprehend. And he also goes on to say that who's to say your spouse can't or won't be one of your best friends in the next life? Relationships are going to continue. They will actually be made perfect. Why wouldn't marriage relationships continue as friendships or unique relationships in heaven? Okay, at this time, I'm going to invite up the worship team as I, as I kind of close off here. I love what Drake says. Not the music Drake, a different Drake. Uh, he says... <laughs> he wasn't supposed to put that picture there. It's a different Drake. This is Drake W. White Church, okay? Not that Drake. But he says, The purpose of marriage is not to replace heaven, but to prepare us for it. To prepare us for heaven where we will be the bride of Christ. Here on earth, we actually long for perfect marriages. And that's what we're going to experience in heaven, is the perfect marriage with Christ. Regardless of your current marital status, whether you've had a good marriage or a bad marriage, whether you're separated, divorced, single, no matter what, in heaven, you will be the cherished and beloved bride of Christ. I feel confident in this quote. God usually doesn't replace his original creation, but when he does... He replaces it with something far better, never worse. Never worse. Randy Elkhorn goes on to write, he says, In heaven you'll have much closer relationships with some people you now know, but it's also true you may never have met the closest friends you'll ever have. On the earth we'll experience, on the new earth, we'll experience the joy and familiarity of old relationships and the joy of discovery of new ones. As we get to know each other better, we'll get to know God better, and we'll find joy in each other, and we'll find joy in him. No human relationship will ever overshadow our relationship with God. All will serve to enhance it. What God has planned for you is amazing. Trust that. Now, this passage can raise all kinds of questions, emotions, and feelings. And I'd love for today to be a day with whatever you're experiencing, whatever fears, excitements, joys, concerns, and uh, frustrations, whatever it is, that for you to bring those things to Jesus in prayer. If you're having a hard time thinking bigger, if you're having a hard time trusting that what Jesus has planned for you is actually better than what you've experienced here on earth, if you're having trouble trusting Jesus with your future, with your eternity, I would challenge you to take advantage of an amazing prayer team that we have here. Our prayer team will be at the front on either sides. You can pray with me. I'll be at the front here as well. And we also have a prayer room across the foyer. As always, if anything in today's text, if anything in today's sermon, a line from one of the songs, 
or something that you just had on your heart or in your mind when you came here today, if that is, is something that you feel, you're feeling nudged to go forward for prayer, I encourage you to take advantage of that today. Jesus loves to mend hearts, to bind the broken, to wipe away tears, and to remind you how loved you really are. So let that happen today. I want to close with this verse from uh, 1 Corinthians 5. It says, Listen, and I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Amen. Stand with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus, help, help us, help me to think bigger. Help us to see past this world, to see what you have in store for us which is so much, so infinitely better and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. We stand at the gate today thinking about entering the afterlife, thinking about what's next with anticipation, waiting and longing for you to just blow our minds away with everything, with the beauty, with the majesty, with the wonder of heaven. Thank you, Lord, that you made a way, that you made a way for us to know you for eternity. So God, we, we bring our fears, our concerns, our frustrations, our questions. God, uh, a passage like this raises so many questions, and so we bring those to you now. Hear us, Lord, as we pray and as we worship. In your name, amen.